Isaiah 53, verse 3. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Our second reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 from verse 16. Verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him, Hail, the king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. They decided what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, And breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who faced him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Anyone who lives in a Western country, Christian or non-Christian, should be aware that Christians believe that Jesus was nailed to a cross and died there. After all, the cross is the symbol of Christianity. But very few people who live in Australia understand why. Very few people understand what's it all about. Why is Jesus' death important to Christians? When Mark wrote the words that Steve just read out from Mark 15, he wrote them to Christians in Rome in about 60 AD. They lived in the midst of a world who also did not understand why Christians would worship a crucified criminal. The piece of graffiti up there on the board is graffiti taken from a wall of ancient Rome. It sums up how the average Roman viewed the Christian worship of Jesus. The Christians lived in a world who thought they were mad for worshipping a crucified criminal. Whoever did that graffiti on that wall was mocking a Christian whose name was Alexamenos. He's picturing Alexamenos' god like the Egyptian gods, a human body with an animal head. But what animal has he chosen for Alexamenos' god, Jesus? A donkey. They knew well that Romans only crucified criminals, traitors to Rome, rebellious slaves, and the general scum of the earth. So by picturing Alexamenos worshipping someone on a cross, that graffiti guy is actually saying... Alexamenus is an absolute idiot for worshipping as God crucified scum. And in some ways, that's our world too. They know we worship someone who was crucified, but they haven't got a clue why. They often think, our world around us often thinks we're mad, even embarrassing, shameful for what we believe in our faith. Mark wrote Mark, and in particular chapter 15 we're looking at this morning, so the early Christians of Rome could be sure 
that Jesus was the Son of God and so that they would understand why his shameful death, and in human terms, it was shameful, so they would understand why his shameful death was actually nothing to be embarrassed about or ashamed of. Let's pay close attention to what Mark says to these Christians for two reasons. The first reason is so that we can be clear in our minds why his shameful death as a crucified criminal should be at the centre of our faith and is nothing to be ashamed of. And secondly, so we can be ready to follow Jesus in the midst of a world that thinks we're stupid. Now, before we read Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion, let's just, I'll just go through a couple of things that we need to know when reading Mark's gospel. First thing, Mark's gospel begins with Mark chapter 1, verse 1, of course, which says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A few verses later in chapter 1, we hear who Jesus is from the very mouth of God himself. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So as we read through Mark 15, where Jesus is crucified, we read that, and as we encounter the various people who are mocking and abusing Jesus, as we read that, we know that he actually is God's son because God's already told us that back in chapter 1. Secondly, as we read about Jesus' suffering and as we read about him being shamed and being mocked, we're meant to read all that already knowing Isaiah 53. Mark wants us to know and recognise that the death and the abuse of Jesus, while it is sorrowful, while it is shameful, it was prophesied. And it is a necessary part of God's plan for Jesus and for us. There's one more thing that Mark's doing that we need to be aware of. Mark doesn't just want to tell us theological facts. Mark's gospel is not a systematic theology textbook. Mark doesn't want us to just go through the prophecies and go, tick, tick, tick. Yes, we can do that and we should do that. But much more than that, Mark wants us to, God wants us to, as we read through Mark 15, he wants us to feel the story, to feel the suffering, the mocking, the abuse, the shame of it all. This is addressed to our head so we can know the facts, but it also speaks into our heart so we can deeply feel that Jesus did indeed suffer in our place as our king and our leader. Now when I say suffered in our place, by our I mean all of us who trust and believe in Jesus. So the story picks up straight after Pilate has just sentenced Jesus to be crucified. And now Jesus is taken from Pilate's presence and moved into the Roman barracks. And that's where we pick it up in verse 16. Just before they took him to Pilate and before the bit we're looking at, 
the Jews had beaten Jesus and mocked him because he claimed to be God. Now, as we pick up in 1516, the Romans beat him and mock him for his claim to be the king of the Jews. In 16, they took him into, in the translation you read, the governor's headquarters. Literally, that is the praetorium. The praetorium was the barracks of the praetorian guard. The praetorian guard were the elite guard of the emperor and of the emperor's governors. They were protecting the governor's prefect, Pilate. If you look at the map of first century Jerusalem, there's two Roman barracks there. The fortress Antonia, which is located right next to the temple. It's ready there as a quick response if a rebellion breaks out at the temple. But the second one is Herod's fortress or Herod's palace. What happened was when the Romans took over, they took Herod the Jewish king's palace and they said, that's ours now. And then the Roman governor moved in and they moved in the Praetorian Guard. So the governor and the Praetorian Guard have Herod's palace as their barracks. As their, their barracks. The interactions between Pilate, the Jewish leaders and the Jewish crowds in the previous bit, they took that out in that open forum. Not the big open bit you can see, the bit to the right. Yeah, it's right on your side too, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the bit to the right, that took place out in that open marketplace. They then brought Jesus through... Uh, back a slide. Sorry, you're one slide ahead of me. They then took Jesus back into that second big open courtyard, which is the open courtyard in the middle of the palace. In 16... It says the whole company were called together. Now the te technical word used in the original language is the whole cohort come together. A cohort is one-tenth of a legion. So we're talking about five to six hundred men here. We have five to six hundred men in that open courtyard with Jesus in the middle. This is serious mocking. Forget all the movies. Whenever you see it on the movies, they've got, you know, five or six men in a little room. No, forget that. The movies have got it wrong. They're in that open courtyard with about 600 men. They are using Jesus as entertainment, like a pantomime show, for the amusement of 600 soldiers. The mocking words, Hail the King of the Jews! You can hear the laughter of 600 men all around him, roaring with laughter. The mocking of the purple robe. They probably just went right next door to Herod's palace, took it out of Herod's wardrobe, put it on Jesus, and then put it back when they were finished. The ridicule of the crown of thorns. The mocking, kneeling at his feet like you would do a king. They strike him on the head with a reed. We would think of it as a cane. They spit on him. Jesus endures the shame and the humiliation as he is their toy for the game among the boys. They think they're being funny. They think they're mocking a wannabe failure. But in their spiritual blindness, they are blind to the fact that they do in fact have the king of the Jews God's king of the Jews, 
right in front of them. And as we read this, seeing what they're doing to someone who we know is God's son, king of the Jews, inside we go, no, you can't be doing that to God's son. You can't treat the son of God like that. But then our minds go to Isaiah 53. And we know that this was and is all part of God's plan, that he would bear it for us. In 21, they can script Simon and Rufus to carry the cross. This is common practice because usually in the pre-crucifixion beating, the victim became so weak from the beating that they didn't have the strength left to carry the cross. Happened here. Mark's editorial note says that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, Mark is using first century code for saying, I'm naming my eyewitnesses now. Mark wrote this gospel for the church in Rome. When we read Mark 16 verse 3, we see when Paul wrote the letter to Rome, he actually greets Rufus, the son of Simon. Mark is telling the church in Rome, as he wrote to them, if you want to verify any of this, go talk to Rufus and Alexander. It was their father who carried the cross. In 22, we see it was named the place of the skull because of the place of death and shame. It was probably this place you see up there. If you look at the bit in the middle, see the two eyes and the shadow and that? The shadows make it look like a skull from a distance. Just out, that's just outside the walls of Jerusalem. But today, it looks a bit different. It looks like this today. It's now a bus car park. You can still visit it today. In 22, they offered him myrrh. This was a drug that was used to dull the pain. But that's not an act of kindness that the Roman soldiers were doing. As expert torturers, the Romans knew if they used that myrrh to dull the pain, they could actually keep the victim along, awake and suffering for longer and endure the shame and the humiliation for longer. But the point Mark wants us to get is that Jesus endured it all without the help of drugs. 24, note the bare simple words, and they crucified him. Now, when you watch the movies, we have lots of blood, lots of guts. The camera closes in on the nails going through the wrist. And there's a cry of pain. There's all of that. But Mark is loudly silent. The silence is deafening about those physical details. Simply, and they crucified him. It's like Mark doesn't want us to focus on the physical pain, but the shame and the humiliation instead. In 24, they divide his clothes. By the time he's up on the cross, he's completely naked. The extreme shame. None of those little cloths you see on the movies or the crosses on walls in churches. Completely naked. While they're down below him, playing dice to see who gets his clothes. No respect. They think so little of him. It was the Roman custom to put a sign over the top of the cross 
telling people what they were convicted of. Mark and God want us to know that he was crucified for being the Son of God, the King of the Jews. And this sign is dripping with irony. Pilate didn't put that sign up as an act of worship. Pilate didn't think that Jesus was politically their king. He just put it up there to annoy the Jews because there was tension between him and the Jews. But for the reader, the sign is saying more than Pilate intended. For us readers, we get the irony. We get that Jesus was indeed God's king. And the sign was there for all to see. So for those with spiritual eyes can see, yes, the true king of Israel is being crucified. In 1527, he's crucified with a criminal on each side. We're meant to connect that with Isaiah 53.12. He was numbered with the transgressors. In 29, we see they hurled insults. In 30, we see they mocked him. In 32, we see they heaped insults upon him. And it came from all sorts of people. In 29, we see it came from those who passed him by. In 31, we see it came from the chief priests and the scribes. In 32, we see it even came from the other criminals. And the mockings included demands for a sign. Like most demands for a sign, their, in, their demands in 32 were not demands for a sign as an act of faith. They were demands that came from hard-hearted unbelief. A stubborn refusal to accept all the signs that Jesus had been doing from chapter 1 right through to chapter 15. They're just ignoring them. They don't want to know about them. And now they're mocking him, asking him for another sign. The irony of the whole sign, this whole scene, is that from 29 to 32, the exact things that they are mocking him about, insulting him and shaming him over, for not being able to do, are the very things that he is actually doing. Let me show you what I mean. They mock him for his claims to destroy the temple and raise it up again. But, as we read John chapter 2, we see as they crucified him on the cross, they were actually destroying God's true temple of God's presence. And as he raises from the dead, he actually is rebuilding the temple of his body where God dwells. They said, he saved others, he can't save himself. But when they mocked him to come down and save himself, he actually could have come down if he wanted to. John tells us he could have called a thousand angels to come rescue him if he wanted to. But he very intentionally chose to stay there on that cross and not come down for the very purpose of dying and enduring the death and shame of us in our place to save us. The very things they mock him for in their blindness for not being able to do are the very things that we worship and glorify him for having done. In 33, as we read of the three hours of darkness, we're meant to see the symbolism of Exodus. Remember the plagues? Remember the last plague that um, 
Moses did for Pharaoh, where the darkness came over the land. But before that, they were meant to kill the Passover lamb and sprinkle the blood over the doorposts. And then as the darkness came, the angel of death, God's angel of death, came through the land. And when the families, in faith, had killed the lamb and put the blood on the doorposts, the angel of death went past and they didn't die. But for those who had no faith and did not kill the lamb and put the blood, the angel of death slaughtered their firstborn child for their lack of faith. What's happening here at the darkness of the cross, God is actually doing both at once. Jesus is the sacrificial Passover lamb. He is being slain so that his blood covers we who believe in Jesus so we will not die from the angel of death on judgment day. But at the same time, Jesus is actually God's firstborn son whom God is slaughtering for our unbelief. So both are happening at the same time. Salvation for belief and death for unbelief. Back in 1529, they were demanding signs from Jesus. But now, God actually gives them a sign. For those with eyes to see, the darkness was a sign that Amos chapter 8 verse 9 was actually taking place. This, that prophecy up there, was a prophecy of the day when God would judge sin. And through this darkness, God is telling them, that day where I'm judging sin is happening right now. They are witnessing God's judgment against sin, against our sin. The sin of the world, the sin of all mankind, was taken from us and placed on Jesus. Now the darkness was symbolizing that the judgment of God is coming down upon Jesus. It's being poured out on him. Not because of Jesus' sin, but because of our sin that is on him. So that we can then stand before God on our judgment day, knowing that our sin is paid for by Jesus if we trust in him. Jesus' own words then help the perceptive listener get a further insight into what's happening. In verse 34, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. That's a psalm where David felt like God had left him. As we keep reading through Psalm 22, we see God actually hadn't left David. David just felt like that. In the same way, when Jesus cries it out, God actually hasn't left Jesus Jesus remains the Son of God, and he will always be the Son of God. So in one sense, God will never abandon Jesus. He can't. God the Father cannot abandon God the Son. They're all God together. But there is a sense in which God did abandon Jesus on that day. In what way? As God looked on Jesus, he saw the sin, and in particular the shame of the world upon him. In the first century ancient world, when someone was shameful, you just turned your back on them and you shunned them and ignored them. What's happening there is Jesus feels and knows that God the Father has looked on him 
and he's seen our shame placed upon him. And God the Father cannot look on our shame on Jesus. And he turns his back on the shame that's upon Jesus. And Jesus feels it and knows it. Jesus is shamed and rejected by the Father so that we need never be shamed and rejected because Jesus has endured our shame in our place. Moving on, verse 35. When he calls out, my God, my God, they think he's calling for Elijah. Easy mistake to make. Elijah, El, God, I, my, Yah, shortening of Jehovah. My God is, Jehovah is my God. That's what the name Elijah means. But the name Elijah was often shortened to Eli, which means my God. So when he calls out, my God, my God, they think he's calling for Elijah. But when they say, let's see if Elijah comes down, they're not curious. They're not, expect, they're not expressing faith. Even at that point, they're still mocking him. They're girding him again for another sign. Give us a sign. See if Elijah will come. But the crowd is so spiritually unperceptive, they do not see that Psalm 22 and Psalm 53 verse 5 are being played out right before their eyes. What was their problem? Why couldn't they see it? It was not an intellectual problem to do with brains or IQ. They knew their Old Testament prophecies. And just like I've been joining the dots for you, putting the ducks in a row so you can see it, they too had the brain power to be able to do that. It was not an intellectual problem. It was a heart problem. They had hard, cynical, unbelieving hearts. Like many people who demand signs from God, it didn't matter what God did. They couldn't see because in their hard hearts, they didn't want to see and believe. They didn't want to submit to God. The mockers don't get the sign they're asking for. Elijah doesn't come. Jesus doesn't come down for the cross. God doesn't bow to our demands for signs. But as a wonderful act of grace and mercy, God did give them the sign of the darkness, if they had eyes to see, and then he gives them another sign for those with eyes to see, just in the hope that if they have that ounce of faith and belief, they will see the sign and know. In 38... God's sign and Mark's sign is telling us what Jesus' death means. And that sign was the temple, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. That tells us that God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. The curtain that was the one that separated the Holy of Holies from the outer part of the temple, that was there to keep people away from God. It kept sinful people away from the holy God. Now, God didn't keep people away because he hated people and wanted them away from him. The curtain was to keep people away as an act of mercy on God's part. Because if we came to God's presence with our sin, we're dead. We're gone. So the mercy was an act, the curtain was an act of mercy to keep us safe and alive, to keep us away from death and judgment. But in God tearing the temple, what he's actually saying is, Jesus has death dealt with our sin. We can now come face to face with God 
because Jesus has dealt with it. Symbolically face-to-face with God now and literally face-to-face with God on the day of judgment if we trust in Jesus and his death for us. In 39, a Roman sees and recognises what the Jewish mockers did not. What does he say? Surely this man was the son of God. For us, the readers, this Roman serves two functions. Firstly, he probably didn't fully understand everything about God the Father, God the Son, or any of that. But he was getting the signs and recognising this was God's son. He's on the way. But for us, the reader, he verbalises what we too are meant to conclude. We too are meant to see this and know, surely this man is the son of God. Second thing this Roman does is he shows us that it's possible to move from being blind mocker to believer, seeing believer. Remember back in earlier in the passage, in verses 16 to 20, when the Romans had him together in Herod's palace, mocking him? As a Roman centurion, he would have been there. He would have been among, this Roman who now sees, would have been among those who were mocking Jesus and laughing at him. And as a centurion, he possibly was even one of the key mockers who was beating and spitting on Jesus. But now he sees. Mark records this detail to challenge his original readers. This Roman saw, do you? What does Mark want us to see as we wrap all this up? His first readers in Rome lived in a world that knew that Christians worshipped as God a guy who was crucified on a cross. But their world didn't really see who Jesus was or why he died. These Christians who Mark wrote to lived in a world that told them they were foolish to worship as God, someone who died shamefully on a cross. Mark wrote to them, And he wrote to all of us who would later read his gospel so that we, despite the mocking of our world around us, would see and know and trust that Jesus is indeed God's son. He is indeed God's appointed king who suffered and died in our place for our sin and shame. He also wrote so that we may have a deeper understanding of what Jesus meant when he said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Jesus endured the suffering and shame of the cross to bring his people to salvation. If we too would follow Jesus and be his disciple, then we too must be willing to endure suffering and shame so that we may bring others to salvation. Now Jesus is not saying that everyone will hate us all the time. We know that. If we're true followers of Jesus, people will see the salt and light that we bring to the world and will be drawn to that salt and light. 
but the world will also mock and abuse us. We are to endure that as followers of Jesus, walking in the footsteps of our master to bring salvation to the world. Now, let me speak just briefly to those who are considering whether or not they should become a follower of Jesus. Jesus' command back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, to repent, and that means turn, to repent or turn and believe in the gospel. That's a command from Jesus. It's not an offer. It's a command to be willing to do something that the world and maybe even your own family around you will not understand. It's a command to do something that may cost you in terms of suffering and shame. But it's also a command from God's King who suffered and died so that we who believe in him could join in his kingdom as part of his kingdom so that we can stand before God on the judgment day fully forgiven. There's a cost, suffering and shame, and there's a benefit to have our suffering and shame paid for for us. Let me speak as someone who's been following Jesus for over 40 years now, since I was 16. It has cost me over the last 40 years, and I'm sure it'll cost me a lot more before I die. But it's worth every bit to know that Jesus is my king and to be part of his kingdom serving him. What a privilege. To finish, yes, Jesus did die a shameful, cursed death. But it's nothing to be ashamed of. He did it as our king in our place to save us so that we don't have to bear the punishment and shame on our judgment day. If you're a follower of Jesus and you want to speak more about what it means to endure suffering and shame to follow Jesus, or if you have any questions or want to think more about what does it mean to become a Christian, to become a follower of Jesus, then I'll be around after to talk to you, or better still, Steve and Merv, the local pastors, are here and they'd love to talk to you. If you don't know who they are, ask one of the locals. One of the locals will introduce you. Think about it. Talk about it more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus did indeed come to earth as the king of his people to suffer and endure shame in our place. Help us, Father, to be willing to take up our cross and follow him. And Father, help us to always be willing to turn and believe in Jesus. We ask these things in your name, that Jesus our Lord may be glorified. Amen.